Well, in our evenings, if you've not been with us, we've been uh, working our way through the New Testament letter of Ephesians, and uh, John's going to be looking at the next piece of that this evening. So we're going to read that passage just now, um, and uh, we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 uh, to 21. So Ephesians chapter 3, 14 to 21, if you've got one of the Pew Bibles, it's uh, page 1175, it's one of the the great prayers of the New Testament, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 and following. Paul says in verse 14, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name, I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us this word and will give us understanding as John preaches on it in a moment or two. We're going to sing again, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, please do come with me to Ephesians chapter 3 this evening as we continue our series and as we come to this last section of the chapter, so from chapter 3, verse 14 through to the end. And as we start to look at this passage this evening, a couple of questions for us. Is there power in the church today? Is there power in the church today? Or perhaps this, what about living the Spirit-filled life? Do we do that? As Christians, the vast majority of us here tonight uh, declare ourselves to be, be believers do we live the Spirit-filled life? Well, whenever I ask that question, I wonder what does it create in your mind? What images spring into your mind? What flurry of thoughts are triggered? And perhaps over coffee, if I said to you, do you live the Spirit-filled life? How would you respond? And if I asked you to tell me how to live the Spirit-filled life, what would you say? I think for many of us, we'd be confused, perhaps. We'd be unsure. We would be tempted to to go down a line of thought that has been charted or a path that has been uh, trodden for us that perhaps doesn't come from our Reformed tradition whenever we think about these things. We would think of a, a particular moment or an experience that would shape us or define us, some sort of a lightning bolt moment that may come into our lives and shape us, some sort of an experience. But 
what we want to see tonight is that in Ephesians chapter 3, if we want to live the Spirit-filled life, if we want to be a church with the power of God at work amongst us, then we've got to understand this section of text. We've got to understand what Paul prays for the church at Ephesus. So, verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. What reason? Why does Paul bow his knee? Why does he pray? Why does he take this posture of prayer? Well, if we want to find the answer to that, we're going to have to scroll back up until chapter 2 and verse 22. Why is Paul praying? He's praying that the people would understand chapter 2 and verse 22, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that we would come into an understanding of what it means to be built up together by the Spirit of God into a living people. And so, this is what Paul wants for us. Verse 15, so as Christians, we understand that we are together with one another in the same family. Verse 15, every family in heaven and on earth is named in accordance with the Father. Now, this is all by way of introduction into the letter uh, and into this section of the letter. But what I also want us to note is something that we can miss. Look at verses 14, then look at verse 16 and verse 17. What, What do we see about Paul's prayer? It's triune, isn't it? Verse 14, he's before the Father in prayer. Verse 16, he asks that we would be strengthened with power through His Spirit. And then in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in our hearts. Something that we can easily miss, isn't it, as we come to this great section of text. And Sinclair Ferguson talks talks about it as, as Paul prays this for the church at Ephesus. What he's doing is actually giving us a little insight into his own devotional life. What happens in his life before the Lord? Because look at the posture of prayer. It's on his knees, isn't it? That's something maybe that we have lost. Uh, Perhaps you remember a person in your family, maybe your mother or father or your grandmother or grandfather, uh, uh, taking to their knees every night. Maybe there's an image uh, from your childhood of walking past their door and seeing them on their knees before the Lord. It teaches us something, doesn't it? Teaching us a position of humility. But here we see a little insight into the devotional life of Paul. And what is he doing? He is praying for this church, that this church would understand all the things that he has said to them. Perhaps we could think about this in a different way. If you've ever tried to teach someone who perhaps is a little bit older than you if you're a young person how to use a piece of technology like a mobile phone, and you're trying to equip them with a new app, okay? I don't know if this has happened in your life. It's happened in my life, where you try to teach someone, look, look, this is the app, and you you click this button, and this takes you to a certain place, and you can type this in, and you go through all of the information, and then you hand it over to the person and say, now you have a go. And they look at you as if to say, I have no idea what to do. (laughs) And you try to take them through it. Paul, in this letter, up until this point, what has he done? He's tried to show the, the, the people in this church at Ephesus who they really are. He's, it's, as if, it's as if he has taken a shovel, and he has taken a shovel full of coal, and he has shoveled it into the engine of the church. 
And so he has shoveled shovelful after shovelful of what? Of doctrine into their lives, telling them who they are. Come back to chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the Father and through Jesus Christ. Then verse 4, we are chosen. There's holiness on display. Verse 5, predestined and adopted. Verse 6, we're uh, to be used for the praise. Verse 7, there's redemption through His blood. Verse 7, there's forgiveness of our trespasses. Verse 8, He has lavished His grace. Verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Do you see these things? Chapter 1 and chapter 2, shovelful after shovelful of coal to go into the, the great steam engine of the church in Ephesus. Paul arrives and the fire is like a little ember. And here he takes the truth and he shovels it into their lives. He equips them with this truth. And whenever you think the coal is running out at the end of chapter one, he goes off for another wheelbarrow full and he comes over and he heals it up and he goes through that wonderful passage that we've looked at all the way through chapter two, how the Lord has saved us by his grace. Chapter two, verse four, God being rich in mercy because of his great love, he has made us alive together with Christ raised us up to sit with Him in the heavenly places. Then through verse 11 and the rest of chapter 2, how we have been brought close, brought into the family of God. The fire should be burning brighter and brighter. He's equipped them with the knowledge they should know how to apply it into their lives. And He blows the flame so that it should not be quenched. And then as he draws to a close in chapter 3, before the, the letter world shift, we'll notice this in the coming weeks, he, he has shoveled the doctrine into their life in the first three chapters, and then he's going to apply it, what it looks like practically, how that starts to flow out of them uh, through the remaining verses and chapter, uh, chapters of the letter. But in this section, he closes it with a prayer to round everything together so that they may know who they are. And what does he pray? He prays that the church would live a life that is changed by the Spirit through the knowledge of the Son and the Father, that they would live the full Spirit-filled life as such. And so with this, we're going to see three things. I think you can see it there. There are three natural chunks within this prayer, three petitions, as it were, as we as we chart our way through. So, our first point of three is this, strengthened containers of Christ in verse 16. He prays that we would be strengthened containers of Christ. And as we work our way through this, we're going to use the word container a lot. And the picture that I have in my mind is, of a, is almost of a, a little bit of Tupperware, a, a little a plastic piece of Tupperware. So, think of ourselves as that, strengthened containers of Christ in verse 16. My second ever car was an Opel Astra. It was a silver saloon. I think my dad talked me into buying it, and I had a lovely wee red Corsa before that. But anyhow, we got this silver saloon of an Opel Astra, and it blew up once, and we bought a new engine and put it in. And things weren't great for it. It was looking pretty poor towards the end of its time because it was leaking water all over the place. It was every time I went on a journey, I had to have two liters of water in the boot so that I could fill it up. Uh, and uh, a friend of myself headed up to Castle Welland to Queen's pre-term, 
And it was its last journey. I'd bought a new car, uh, and this was its last journey. And my mate said, well, sure, I'll drive. I said, no, it'll be fine. I'll take the car. It'll do one final lap up to Castle Well and back again. And about one mile from the house, it blew up. No, no chance to sell it. And what was the problem? It was leaky, leaking all over the place. It was leaking water. It couldn't contain the water that the engine needed. It was leaking it out. The engine was wrecked. It was a disaster. What does Paul pray for the church? That we would not be leaky containers, that we wouldn't blow up, the engine wouldn't seize, but that we would, we would be strengthened. Look at verse 16. That according, he prays, that according to the riches of his glory, the Father, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Paul prays that the church would be strong, that each individual would be strong containers, that they will hold what is given to them. And he prays, Lord, strengthen them, because he knows. He knows that we're tempted to leak. He knows that we're, we're not going to leak, as it were, from the top. We'll think about that in point three. But we're going to leak from the bottom. And as he uses this word strengthen, isn't it interesting in verse 16 that he says that we are to be strengthened in our inner being? Often whenever we think of the word strengthen, we think of external, don't we? We think of muscles and workouts. But here in verse 16, it's a reference to our inner being, that we as containers would be strong as vessels and as pots and as pieces of clay, that we would be strengthened to have Jesus living in us through His Spirit. Because if we are Christians tonight, this is no small thing. To have Jesus indwell us, we need strength. The risen, ascended Lord of the universe living within us. As, as mere humans, we should be bursting at the seams, shouldn't we? The dwelling place of the King of glory within us. And so Paul is asking the Lord to come in the power of the Spirit to reinforce the inner walls of our lives. Now, what are the things that cause holes to form? If you are imagining that little piece of Tupperware and little holes, a drill perhaps coming and it's starting to leak out, what are, what are the drill bits that, that seem to come into our container, as it were, our inner spiritual life and cause us to, to leak out the goodness of God? Well, perhaps it's a difficulty that comes into our life something that we didn't see coming, and the drill bit comes, and it hits us right at the bottom of the container, and it starts to, to, to empty all of the goodness of God out of us. All of the knowledge of the first two and three chapters of this letter, all of the wonderful things that we have heard. Yes, I know that I am saved. I know that God has, has rescued me. I know He's poured His mercy upon me. I know I'm united to Christ, but here I am, and I, I can't seem to contain this. It's it's, it's draining from me. Maybe it's the desire for sin. It has peppered the side of our container. Maybe it's the doubting of God's character for whatever reason. reason. Maybe it's the, the desire for something that you thought you would have, but you don't, and it's frustrating you, and it's draining you. It's it's licking all of this goodness out of you of who 
you are in the Lord. See, the truth is that our containers are rusty and leaky and often full of polluted water. And so tonight, if, if we were to start to think about our containers and we're thinking about the work that needs to be done, the, the duct tape that needs to be put onto the outside of it, the reconstruction work, the rebuilding, the, the wells that need to be put into place, I wonder tonight if we are taking that image of the container and having all of the, the various verses from chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 built into our lives, I wonder tonight if we took a test of the, of the water within our container, as it were, the spiritual water, if you like, what would the pH of it be? Where would we be with our purity and with our holiness? Would the doctrine that we have thought about for many weeks, has that started to change the water of our container, the, the things that, that slosh around inside of us? You see, it's one thing to be given the truth, and it's another thing to let that truth sink into our inner life. Doctrine and the knowledge of who God is and what He is like, what happens to that? It often dries up, doesn't it? By Monday afternoon, perhaps it's gone. It often disappears. It often leaks out. It's often consumed. It's often replaced by other thoughts. So, the call as we edge into this great prayer is this. Let's empty out all the dirty water that's in our container, all the, all the, the wrong thoughts. Let's, let's empty the container and let's do work on the container, as this prayer says, through the Spirit, letting the Holy Spirit plug the holes in our container, the places that we're likely to leak, that we deal with it so that we don't make a wreck of our lives. What we're really talking about here is our hearts. And our hearts, Tim Keller often talks about this, our hearts, it's not just our emotions. That's a wrong view of our hearts. Our hearts are so much more. Whenever the Bible talks about our hearts, it's so much greater and deeper than that. Our hearts are the place of our, the throne, if you like, of our personality. It's our mind. It's our will. It's our emotions. And so, all of the previous weeks up until this point, they should have changed or beginning to change our hearts. Here's some of the problems. If I'm only emotionally lifted up, well, then that hasn't changed how I act or how I live. You've had an experience, but it hasn't actually changed your life. If I'm intellectually excited about the Lord, but that hasn't changed the way that I live or feel, then that hasn't hit our hearts either. If I just go through the motions of Christianity, doing things because they have to be done, then that hasn't affected our mind or our feelings. It hasn't changed our hearts. And so, our inner being has to be changed. Our hearts have to be changed. And Paul prays that they would be strengthened because what's coming for us? What's coming for our containers? What's coming for your container? Your heart. Trouble. Drill bits are coming. It's as if a shotgun shell is going to be fired at your container, and it's going to pebble the side of it, and it's going to burst it with little holes. 
And in that moment, will we be strong enough? Will we have the strength? Will our inner containers be strengthened through the power of the Spirit? Well, it's our prayer that they would. So, Paul knows that this church and the believers need to be strengthened. So, what will they do? Will they respond to this? Will they deal with sin? Or will they ignore it? Well, the trust is that that they will understand this prayer, that God will grant it. And then we come to verse 17. You see the so that. So he has prayed that the church, us as people, would be strengthened in our containers. Why? So that, verse 17, and this brings us to our second point, that we will be indwelt containers by Christ. We have to be strengthened containers of Christ so that we can be indwelt. Now we can pour stuff back into our lives. We can pour this doctrine and the goodness of God back in. Verse 17, this is the aim, so that we can be strengthened. Now, you may say to me, John, this happens at the moment we're converted. That's right and true. We're given uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes to dwell within us, uh, and Jesus dwells within our hearts through His Spirit. But what Paul is praying for here is that ask is that he's asking that the dwelling here would be bright in us, that that Christ would come and dwell in us, and that the light of Christ would start to seep out through us to other people. A dwelling place, verse seventeen, and he uses two illustrations to 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 explain what it means that Christ would dwell in our hearts. You see it there, rooted and grounded. He uses a a horticultural term in being rooted, and then a construction image, an engineering image of being grounded. And what's it in? It's in the love of Christ, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. So, what do we start to pour back in? We start to pour back in love, And with great trees, to take these two images that Paul uses, with great trees and with great buildings, what do we do? We come to a cityscape, and perhaps we're at the foot of a great skyscraper, and we look up and we we think, what an amazing building. Look at the beauty of this. I've done that. I'm sure you've done it. But it would be very odd or very rare for someone to say, what an amazing building. I wonder what the foundations are like. I wonder how far into the ground they had to pile to get the concrete down deep so that they could go so high. No one thinks about the foundation, sure they don't. All people do is admire the great building. And similarly, whenever it comes to great trees, we look at great trees, but it's not our first thought to go, I wonder how deep the roots are. I wonder what soil those roots go down into. I wonder how deep they go. And yet Paul uses that for us. If you want to be built up, if you want to be uh, blooming and flourishing into a great tree, if you want to go very tall as a great skyscraper, as it were, for Christ, then what's important is the roots. It's the foundation. And the roots got to go down into what? Into the love of Christ. The foundations, they got to be pile-drived, poured, as it were, concrete in, the concrete of the love of of Christ, established in Him. And so it is with the Christian. Before Paul comes to this outward life that we'll see in chapters 4 and further on, 
He says we've got to get our roots healthy, our foundations secure. We need to go down deep into the love of Christ. And how does he, how does he explain that further? Then he folds out verse 18. May, this, may you have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Isn't this a wonderful way to think of the Lord's love for us? How do we measure it? It's broad, it's high, it's deep, it's long. It's what Paul says in Romans 5 verse 8. How do we measure the love of God? God shows His love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For, while, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son, much more now that we will be reconciled and we shall be saved by His life. How do we measure the love of God? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. What changes us? What turns us from being crooked people, twisted in ourselves, selfish beings, narcissists that, that roam our houses and roam our streets as if we're kings and queens? What is it that, that takes our hearts and melts them from being hard? What is it that gives us compassion for those around us? What gives us the energy for the person that we, we really would rather not see? As Christian people, there, there's no there's no magical course that you've got to go on. There's no lightning boat that you've got to find. Paul says, you've got to experience this. You've got to experience the love of Christ. You've got to know the, the breadth of it and the length of it. And how do you know that? You see it first by seeing your sin and seeing the great cost that your sin must have taken on the, on the Son of God that it required the Son of God to give up His only life, to come and to be a human, and to go to the cross. And not until we see our sin will this ever make any sense. Only when we see the, the, the dirt and the, the scum of our sin in our lives, and then we see the love of Christ, the one who comes to wash that sin and deal with that sin, then we start to see the, the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of His love. For some reason in our human minds, what happens to us is that we think that, that we're beyond the love of God, don't we? That for some reason in, in our land, we, we think that, that the love is only for the good people. That the love is only for those who are dressed appropriately. That the love of Christ could never extend to, 
to someone like me who has done the things that I've done. And Paul says, you haven't understood this. God's love reaches for sinners. Jesus comes to seek and to save sinners. He comes to bring sinners close. The length and the breadth and the height and the depth. Verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Do we know this love? Is this the love that fills our containers, that changes us, that, that, that starts to then flow over from our lives? That's our, our final point, that as we have our containers strengthened and then we're indwelt with Christ, verse 17, so Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith in this sense of the love of Christ. Then verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, Christ in our lives, Christian, He's not just one thing amongst many. No, but He is the one thing that is to be in many, in everything. And so, what do I mean? I mean this. We're told to be filled with the fullness of God. And that doesn't mean that we're just here on a Sunday and it, it looks like we've got the fullness of God on us or, or in us, and then that we, we take that off as we go into the world. If we are Christians, if we have understood this, this great love that Paul's praying that the church would know, if we have experienced that, then it flows into every aspect of our lives. And so, what does it mean to be full of God, full of this knowledge, this knowledge of the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding, this work of the Trinity in each believer? What does that look like? It's Christ-centered living. What does Christ-centered living look like? It means living in the knowledge of God, and that impacts everything that we do. Let's think about it for a few moments. What does Christ-centered living look like in the workplace? It looks like everything that we do is changed by what? By the love of God, not by trying to be a good person, but because of what we just talked about, that love changing us. Our reactions, our desires in the workplace, our hearts, remember the emotional and intellectual and the will, Christ changing us in our workplace. I had a conversation this week with a man and, and he, talked, he talked about uh, uh, the Christian faith, and it's the same argument. He, he talked about people that he knew that claimed to be the, the best Christians in the world, but it only seemed to be on a Sunday. And in the workplace, they brought discredit upon the name of Jesus. Christ-centered, full of God. You see, the fullness goes with us everywhere, not just to one place, but to all places and all things Christ-centered in our homes. How we speak, how quick are we to say sorry in our homes? How selfish are we in our demands? What about being Christ-centered in our suffering? A little phrase that, uh, that we have used here around Hill Street is how do, how do we be Christ-centered in our sufferings? Well, it's a little children's book illustration. 
How do we live for Christ in suffering? Well, we simply declare, just as the moon is always round, so God is always good. In our suffering, sometimes our image of the Lord is blocked out, just like the image of the moon can be blocked out with clouds and with the cycle of the, the earth around it, but it's always round. And so God is always good. Christ-centered in our sufferings mean that whenever we struggle to understand God's will, yet we trust Him fully. Lord, I don't know what You're doing, but I trust You. What about being Christ-centered in our relationships? If we're going to live this life full of the knowledge of God and of His love, well, in our relationships, if you're single, it's all about who you are going to date if you want to date. So, women, please do not settle for a man who does not love Jesus as Lord. Compromise comes, doesn't it? Well, they go to church. But is the Lord Lord of their lives? Men, do not settle for a woman who does not love Jesus as Lord. In our marriage, is Christ part of your marriage? Is this fullness that Paul prays for, has it seeped into your marriage? If I asked you tonight, what is God teaching you as a couple? What's He pressing upon you as a couple? What would you say? Have you talked about what the Lord Jesus is doing amongst you? In our relationships as friends, is the love of Jesus, is this the breadth and the length and the height and the depth what encourages you in your friendships? Is that what you talk about in your friendships, one with the other? The clock always beats us, but here's, here's the point. Doctrine. The doctrine, the knowledge of who God is, it makes a difference upon our lives. Doctrine, meaning the truth of God, should drive us and change us. It's the coal that comes into the engine that fires us as individuals and as a church. It's the truth about Father, Son, and Spirit. It's the Trinity at work in our lives. This is no boring life to be a Christian. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all at work in us as individuals and as a church. And we're to know this love, the sheer magnitude and the wonder of the triune God in our lives, and it applies to us, and it warms our hearts, it changes us, it reconstructs us, and it sends us out, it flows over from us to other people. And that's why Paul ends with verse 20 and through to 21, now to him who is able the triune God who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. The power of the triune God. And then look at this, according to the power at work within us. He's in us doing things, moving and changing. That is power. And not for our promotion, but verse 21. So to him be the glory in the church and in Christ through all generations. What does it mean to be Spirit-filled? 
What does it mean to have power in our churches, in in our church families? It means this, to be a person who understands the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that it's the person who lets this knowledge fill them up to overflowing. It's hard work, isn't it? to understand these verses, to dig into them, to reflect back on all that we have heard so far in Ephesians. It's hard, but it's where the power comes from, and that's what we want, isn't it? We want churches and Christians who are full of power, power from on high, with the love of Christ filling them to overflowing. That's what we long for a church where love dwells in all its fullness, the love of Christ. It's in the church where the world should find the love of God. It's here that we should find, each one of us as Christians, the love of Christ for ruined sinners. And it's in the church that believers come together to worship as the Holy Spirit builds us into a dwelling place of God. So can we say, with Paul, verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that we be in one family, that we would be strengthened with power inwardly, understanding the love of Christ deeply and experiencing His glory in community. That's what we want, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ through all generations. Lord, establish your power once again in the church as we understand this passage and as the Holy Spirit applies us. Jesus, do more in us than we can ask or ever think. Amen.